Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 28th of January with me Ian Welsh. A few weeks ago I spoke with Mike Kaczynski, founder and CEO of conservation business Wildlife Works. We talked about how market mechanisms can develop effective forest conservation utilising climate finance and the international voluntary carbon market. And this week I caught up with Innovation Forum's Natasha Bodnar to find out how the future of food conference coming up in May is shaping up. First though is some sustainable business news. Evidence of how extreme weather events have been increasingly impacting farmers in the US has come from analysis of insurance payouts for loss of crops to drought and flooding over the past 25 years. These have more than trebled over the period, analysis of US federal government data suggests. The news reinforces concerns that costs of insuring US crops will impact insurance companies, farmers and US taxpayers as the federal government pays around 60% of crop insurance premiums through taxpayer subsidies. Drought-related payments rose more than 400% between 1995 and 2020 to $1.65 billion. Payments due to excess moisture, including flooding, increased nearly 300% to $2.61 billion over the same period. The increases are partially offset by an increase of 84.5% in the crop area covered by insurance. The latest research from non-profit Circle Economy shows that global resource use hit an all-time high in 2021 despite pandemic impacts on the world's economy. Circle Economy release a report every year on the state of circular economy progress to coincide with the World Economic Forum's meetings in Davos, which have, of course, this year been postponed to the summer. This year's report says that 101.4 billion tonnes of virgin materials were used in 2021, up from 100 billion tonnes in 2019. On current growth trajectories, raw material use will reach up to 184 billion tonnes by 2050. Recycling rates remain at 8.6%. The report links 70% of global emissions to extraction, manufacture and use of products. Circle Economy has a series of solutions that can help the planet on a 1.5 Celsius warming path. These include using fewer resources, using them for longer, focusing on nature regeneration and then recycling what has been used. A problem highlighted in the new research is that too often business and government has adopted a recycling first approach. In the UK, the current administration has been praised for some aspects of its approach to animal welfare, including curbs on live exports of livestock. However, reports have emerged that key aspects of new legislation that did pass through the House of Commons earlier this month have been put on hold because of disagreement within the government over whether tightening rules on animal welfare would be unpopular with the traditional landowning supporters of the Conservative administration. The passage of the welfare legislation into law has also been dragged into the ongoing debate over the future of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, with Environment Minister Zach Goldsmith stating that if Johnson is forced out of office, the UK risks losing its position of leadership on climate and nature-related issues. Others have dismissed this view as a rather clumsy attempt to coerce members of Parliament into supporting the Prime Minister. Transparency International's latest Corruption Perceptions Index warns that the pandemic has been used as a cover in many parts of the world to roll back basic human rights and to get around checks and balances that have previously called out modern slavery and forced labour. Every year, Transparency International surveys business leaders and other experts, asking them to score 180 countries on their perceived levels of public sector corruption. There are clear links between corruption and human rights abuses. Countries that the survey found as the most highly corrupt accounted for almost all murder of human rights defenders. South Sudan, Syria and Somalia came at the bottom of the pile this time, with North Korea, Afghanistan and Yemen, among others, not too far behind. Denmark, Finland and New Zealand were ranked the least corrupt. 
The report highlights the importance of transparency as governments invest in national economies to encourage post-pandemic growth, and that the pandemic cannot be used as an excuse to impose restrictions on freedom of expression or assembly. Bodies that hold power to account must, Transparency International says, be able to operate freely. The Innovation Forum's Spring Event Series will include conferences on responsible sourcing, sustainable apparel and textile supply chains, and business action on climate change. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. From the 10th to 12th of May, we'll be holding our Europe-focused Future of Food event. To find out how the conference is shaping up, a few days ago I spoke with Innovation Forum's Natasha Bodnar. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Hi Ian, thanks for having me. My pleasure as ever. We've got the Future of Food event coming up 10th to 12th of May. What's the format for this year? We're still online, aren't we? Yeah, there's going to be another virtual global forum. As a lot of you will know already, we have been doing virtual events for the last few years. Um, This one in particular has been a really great success. So we've decided to keep it online and give it more of a global focus than we have in the past. Obviously, the benefits of remaining online also means that we can get people from across the world joining. Um, It enables us to get farmer voices more easily in the room. On top of that, for delegates, it means that sessions are recorded, so they're accessible for 12 months. It's going to be lots of content. Hopefully, it should be a good few days. Hope so. Yes, I I totally agree that the benefit of being online is that you can bring in diverse voices from all around the world onto the same sessions. That's certainly been a benefit. There are obviously things that you miss when you're not face to face, but that's certainly, I would think, one of the main benefits. What are the themes for this year's agenda then? And what's changed since we did this 12 months ago? So the focus of this event will be around how business can lead the transition to sustainable food systems. The key themes of this year will be climate action, regenerative food, sustainable nutrition, um, farming, land use and nature. Obviously, the slight, I would say, emphasis this year more than in the past will be around climate action and sustainable nutrition. We didn't have as much. So we're going to be looking more at the dress transition side of things as well. And I guess thinking about regenerative practices as well will be a hot topic on the agenda. Absolutely. Okay. What are the sessions then that you want to pick out and talk about? I think the two sessions which stand out for me that I'm looking forward to is the opening session, kind of just what we were talking about, the whole forum, looking at food systems transformation. So here we'll really be looking at what is needed to enable this just transition to happen for sustainable food systems. And that would be an interesting session. The other one for me, I have an interest in climate. So the decarbonization of agriculture, obviously with the global climate focus right now, I'm very excited to hear what our panelists are going to say on that session. So tell me, what are the panelists then who's uh, already confirmed as expert panelists? We have already got some great companies who have already signed up. So we've got Unilever, and they're all actually really senior executives. Yeah, from Unilever, Danone, Waitrose, JBS, PepsiCo, Diageo, even got some Ben and & Jerry's and Tesco representatives. So we've got some really great companies already on board. Yeah, they're going to be spread across the three days on different topics. We've got some NGOs out as well. Yes, for sure. Good, looking forward to that. Okay, so how can listeners get involved then? I know we've got a deadline coming up. We've extended our deadline, listeners, for conference passes. So you can save £150 if you register before the 4th of February. But what other opportunities are there, Natasha? 
obviously the best way to get involved is as a delegate is to register, as you just explained. We do still have some speaking opportunities available, so please do get in touch if you're interested in that. If you're looking for further exposure, then we have some really great sponsorship packages, which will obviously give your company exposure before and during the event. That's an option too. You can get in touch with myself or Anita Thompson for that. And contact details are available on the conference section of the Innovation Forum website. Looking forward to the event. May will come round very quickly, no doubt, Natasha. But thanks very much for your time this afternoon. No worries. Thanks again, Ian. A few weeks ago, in the run-up to the COP26 meetings, I spoke with CEO and founder of Wildlife Works, Mike Korczynski, about how he and his colleagues have developed successful forest conservation projects that are biodiversity-driven, ecosystem-based, and crucially, community-centred. Why don't you briefly introduce the work of Wildlife Works, perhaps give some insight into how this in turn provides opportunities for the voluntary carbon markets. So Wildlife Works started about 25, almost 25 years ago now, with a pretty simple idea that occurred to me when I was visiting Africa for the first time. And that idea was that if we want to have magnificent wildlife in our future on this earth, we need to find ways that it can exist in harmony with the local communities that share their landscape with that wildlife. So that notion that if we want wildlife, then wildlife has to work for local communities was the aha moment for me to start Wildlife Works 25 years ago. And so I came back from that trip thought about it a little bit more and quit my job in a public company and started Wildlife Works to try and bring a new way to solve a concept, this particular conservation challenge, which is how do you make room for wildlife? How do we as a species, a human species, make room for wildlife when our own needs are growing and our own appetite for resources are growing? And that's putting us into increasing conflict with the wilderness and wildlife. How do we create a solution that stops that and creates a more synergistic future for both wildlife and communities. So that was the general idea behind Wildlife Works. I thought that was a problem that needed to be solved with new thinking and new sources of finance. My background was in business, not philanthropy, so I didn't really know how to run a charity. And so when I started Wildlife Works, we started as a company with a mission that looks a lot like a charity mission. How would you protect, how would you create an environment in which wildlife can exist in harmony with local communities? From the beginning, we're interested in market mechanisms. Is, is it How do we bring this enormous market that has been responsible for terrible devastation in the natural world and A, stop it from harming the natural environment, but go beyond that to harness its power to heal and protect the natural environment. So that was part of our mission as well, to engage a new source of finance from the marketplace to protect the world's natural places. So carbon finance was one mechanism that came along, not at the beginning, interestingly. We started before the Kyoto Protocol. So there was no climate market when we started. So we had to experiment with a number of market mechanisms that we invented essentially to try and create value in preserving the wilderness for the local communities. So we created jobs protecting the forest. We created jobs measuring the forest. We created jobs monitoring wildlife. We created a little eco factory where the community could make goods that we could then sell to wildlife loving consumers in the West. And all of these ideas were ways that we were searching to connect the market with 
the community and bring value to the community from the protection of wildlife. And frankly, none of them were particularly effective, although they were effective in the nature of our relationship with community, because from the very get-go, they could see that our actions were to try and bring them things they wanted, like jobs and money and schools and healthcare and things that they themselves knew they wanted. So that was successful. Our launching into a community with that kind of idea was very successful. The mechanism of finance was not successful. We were never able to generate enough finance to scale that project in, in Kenya, which is where our first project was, or to show that this was really a repeatable, scalable model that could be done in other countries, in other wilderness around the world. Climate finance came along maybe not quite 10 years in about for us because our DNA was to seek market solutions to the problem. We were very aware of its potential right from the beginning, right from the beginning when the UN suggested this idea that there'd be a mechanism to incentivize protection of the natural world to preserve the climate. We were aware of that conversation and we followed it. And then we became one of the very first projects or companies to attempt to use that mechanism that came out of the UN Red Plus activity at project scale to try and figure out, well, how do we actually make this tangible and real for a real community in Kenya? Our first project there, the Kasagao Corridor Red Project, was started in the mid-2000s and became the first project of its kind under a standard which was called, at that time, VCS. It's called uh, under a, a nonprofit called VERA, that is the, an international independent standard that set the rules for how a project that's going to make claims of protecting the climate can actually justify those claims and be awarded with an asset. So that whole climate market that emerged in the mid-2000s is based on the idea that every ton of CO2 that we put in the atmosphere should have a cost. It's damaging to our climate, it's damaging to our future, and therefore every ton should have a cost. And stopping every ton should have a value. So preventing tons of CO2 from entering the environment should have a value. And the market is based around that value and what we're willing as a society to pay to protect the climate from these emissions. So that's kind of how we ended up being in the climate business. We found it to be very effective for our work. We had some luck early on in attracting corporates that had early thinking on this subject and were looking for ways to engage in climate and wilderness. And so we got some early support and we were able to scale our project in Kenya and add an additional project in the Congo, in the DRC, which is the second largest tropical rainforest on earth. Those two things, the stability of our Kenya project expansion into the Congo, really showed us that this mechanism has the potential to solve problems globally, one forest at a time, essentially. Yeah, and Innovation Forum team were delighted to be able to case study the Akasugao Corridor Red Plus project in a special webinar recently. Certainly it was a great pleasure to talk to the people on the ground and to really get an idea how the use of the verified carbon emission reductions enables such an interesting development on the ground as the same time as, as uh, helping deal with the world's climate crisis. So let's think about things more broadly in terms of the carbon markets. How do you characterise the state of the Red Plus market right now? Somebody called it frothy to me the other day, which I thought was interesting characterization. The market itself has been slow to evolve. We've been involved in it for 15 years. Aspects of it have moved more quickly, such as you know the European climate market that is a compliance-based market, meaning that the governments are regulating emissions and that's created a market opportunity. But the voluntary market, which is the one that we play in, 
where companies are not compelled to mitigate their carbon footprint through use of our reductions, our emission reductions. That one has been up and down over the last 15 years. But I would say in the last 18 months, and really in this year, in 2021, somewhat ironically, considering the pandemic has influenced in general, the market has taken off. And I think maybe the pandemic scared people in the corporate world about the damage that we've done to the natural world and what kind of consequences there could be to our own health as well as our own businesses. You know, corporates obviously have a business mission and they're seeing, I think, a lot of uncertainty in the future because of the damage we've done to climate. And uncertainty is bad for business in general. We've seen a huge engagement from the business community Partly, I think, because of that, that they all realize it's their problem. They're part of the problem and they should be part of the solution. And if they're not, then what are they doing? Then partly also because they've seen how slowly the regulatory movement has occurred. The promise of compliance markets or requirements placed on corporates to solve this problem has just moved very slowly and is not solving the problem, clearly, because the situation is still getting worse. And so in some ways, the voluntary market provides a way for corporates to go as fast as they want to go and not have an excuse. The excuse of the compliance market is it's a compliance market. If I'm not regulated, I can't voluntarily participate. I have to wait until they regulate me. And then when they regulate me, I'll do what I'm regulated to do. That for many corporates is too slow and not engaging enough today. And so I think the voluntary market is seeing this in a way, this lack of patience with the regulatory frameworks and the formal UN process, which is for the, any of the, anybody that's been involved in it, which we have now for nearly two decades, it's really not the right process to solve an urgent crisis. It's a consensus building process across 197 countries. And you can imagine that getting consensus with five countries is problematic enough. Getting consensus with every country, with every different self-interest is nigh on impossible. It's amazing that they ever achieve anything there, but they do eventually, but very slowly. In the meantime, as you say, the corporate world has realised that they just have to get on with it. And whilst the UN level processes will take time, we may get there eventually, there's not time to wait. And in the meantime, you have to get on with it as, as well. The very interesting the ecosystem services marketplace, or ecosystem marketplace rather, report that came out showing how quick the markets grew this year, 60% growth, billion plus dollar market by the end of the year. It seems to me that it's coincided with the fact that, um, as you say, companies realise they have to get on with it. And the hard work of the likes of Vera have for years been developing the extremely rigorous standards based in science. And suddenly the companies are realizing, well, we can start getting on with this. And the science is demonstrating that we can make the progress that we want to make. And it seems a sort of a critical mass has, has been reached. The social side of Red Plus projects, very important for their success. Why is that? Perhaps give us some insight as to why it's the social side that mean they really do work. Well, we talk often about forests and deforestation as if it's this thing that occurs in the abstract and not as it's something that's happening somewhere and that in almost every somewhere on earth, there are people. You know, there are very few somewheres that there aren't people. Antarctica comes to mind, right? And so when you, you can't talk about solutions to climate that involve land without thinking about the people that live there and without thinking that the people that live there are engaged in getting on with their own life and that therefore they probably know as well as anybody on earth what the challenges are of preserving the natural world in which they live. And they probably know the solutions to that problem as well as anybody on earth. They often don't have the means to enable those solutions themselves. In our case, the social element is really a frankly a long overdue recognition that none of these solutions we're proposing for climate that are land-based 
are sustainable, are achievable or sustainable without the full support of the communities that live in that landscape. That's a very challenging notion for some governments, even in some ways at the UN level, which the UN, if we are clear, it's, it's the ultimate country club. It's a club of countries. Their constituency are countries. Their thinking is sort of macro country thinking. So the lowest common denominator of their entire membership. So it's very challenging for them, even though within the UN, there are many very smart people who are very aware of all the challenges and very clear about the need to engage communities. I'm not suggesting that the UN doesn't have a wide involvement at every level, but actually in the end, reaching down to individual communities in individual places is way beyond their remit. And it's often beyond the remit of the host governments because they have other problems to solve for the majority of their population that isn't getting good education or good health care. They have bigger challenges as they evolve as countries. And so for them, sometimes for them, it's difficult to reach down into these landscapes and, and deal with these individual, very specific solutions that are needed at the local level. So that's where folks like us come in, is that that's our joy, is going and working with these individual communities to tailor a solution that really works for them, that they're a full participant in designing and in enacting. So that's the key, is we really don't believe that, these, the, that any other approach is going to be effective. You know, Historically, of course, in conservation, for generations since the beginning of conservation, conservation was what we call in Wildlife Works, fence and shoot conservation put a fence around anything you want to protect and shoot anybody that comes near. That model is a horrible old school model, but it's persisted until today in many parts of the world because of the evolution of the park's systems. The challenge now is, now that there's a recognition that we need more land in conservation, not less, is that a lot of the land that's currently in conservation was put into conservation with no consultation of communities, no recognition of rights. But it is there and it's a reality in these governments. There's a renewed interest in how do we engage these communities effectively in the solution. And folks like us are sort of on the pointy edge of that because of the work we've been doing with communities in Africa for 25 years. It was very telling on the webinar that uh, Innovation Forum did about the Kasagu project, how the people involved were very keen to stress that they felt that they'd had a full FPIC process, the kind of free prior informed consent to then agree to protect the value in the ecosystems in which they lived because that value had been recognised by others. And that was very, very strong. I, I thought that they felt they had that consent and they'd agreed together to do that. And in doing so, were able then to access the carbon markets and then develop their you know, the development locally as well. Thinking forward then, what do you see as barriers to the growth of Red Plus projects? And what do you think are the key ways to get around them? In many of these forest communities that have been ignored largely by the global marketplace, the global society forever, there's some distrust, right? There's a level of distrust of, hey, I'm from the outside world and I'm here to help. <laughs> there's some distrust and, and, and understandably so, because the historical interactions maybe with the outside world have not been very positive. So I think that that's one obstacle is that we really have to be able to show and one of the things we're working on is this community communication. It's one thing for me to show up and say, look, we, we, you know, there's, there are ways now that you can access climate finance that will allow you to achieve your desired outcomes for your local economy in protecting the natural world that you live in. 
it's another thing for a member of a, of a community in Africa to visit a community in Latin America or vice versa and say, this is what this really means. And this is how it's really affected our community and how it's benefited our community. As much as we love that webinar, it's not yet reaching the audience we want it to reach. The audience we really want to reach is the community to community audience communication, where they're telling each other that there's an answer out there that is accessible and suitable or they're debating with each other whether it is or isn't suitable. That's where we want to get to. So that's one hurdle is this, how do we enable that communication to overcome this mistrust that exists in these forest communities? The second thing I think is that we're, we're cognizant of is that many governments in the areas that we're dealing with, which is generally the tropics, the global south, are themselves emerging into the modern economy. They themselves were excluded for a long time from the global economy, or their countries were used as a source of resources for the global economy where companies would be extractive and would not be putting back into the, the countries. And that all comes from, a, in many cases, a colonial legacy that these countries have had to deal with. And beyond colonialism, the political divide that's created conflicts that these countries have been forced into picking sides on sometimes. One of the challenges is that these countries are saddled with a system that they didn't design and that they're now trying to figure out how to make their own decisions for their own people independently of this global north that has tried to control their actions forever. So how do they emerge in a way that doesn't isolate them because that's not going to work. They can't be isolated from the global market. That's not what they want, but they want to engage the global market on their own terms. They don't want to be told what they have that we need. They want to suggest what they need. There's a risk that the global north won't let go. And we see this in a number of ways, that the global north has tremendous influence and they like that model where they control things. There's a risk that they will make it more challenging than it should otherwise be for these communities to engage on their own terms. Because government, I don't know, want to say that it's ill-intentioned necessarily, it's that government has seen, northern governments, global north governments, have seen a role of theirs to provide assistance to these countries. And they've developed programs over many years, and those programs are near and dear to somebody that works in those governments. And they were well-intentioned for the most part, I'm going to say. But they weren't designed from the bottom up. They were never designed by going and asking these communities, what do you need, right? And so I think that's going to be a challenge, is the challenge is how do we integrate this real enthusiasm in the global north and in the global marketplace to engage in solutions with a recognition that those solutions have to come from the bottom up. And we have to be willing to accept those solutions and not try and control those solutions in the way that we've always controlled the marketplace. And so I think that's a challenge. And we see that in a number of ways. Good actors are, are very aware of that challenge and are willing to try and solve that problem. Bad actors are dragging their feet and trying to find ways to maintain the status quo in the marketplace. As you say, so much of this is part of the overall transformation of markets that's going to be required alongside everything else to get the thinking around moving to a net zero carbon economy by 2050. It is going to require transformation of thinking across the board in so many different places. But it's interesting that the Global North has been so much of the problem, but it does perhaps have, through the likes of Red Plus, a solution to some of the problems that have been created. So it'll be interesting to see how that can develop. It has the source of financing for that solution. The Red Plus solution itself is being created on the ground in these countries with these communities, one community at a time. And I think that's the thing. The mechanism, which is frankly not rocket science, if you want, it really says if we want to protect forests, we have to create the economic 
incentive as a society to protect them. We have to show that there's value in protecting this forest and show that we value those communities that are willing to do it. So that mechanism, yes, of course, came out of the UN. What the Global North has now is they have the financial wherewithal to enable that solution to occur around the world. And I think that's the thing is that they have the financial wherewithal, but it's not an either or. They also have the financial wherewithal to reduce their own footprint. And that's one of the first questions that comes out of our constituent communities is, well, what are they doing for themselves? Like, it's not all about us, right? What are they doing? The better companies that we engage with are very aware that they need to reduce their own footprint and they need to be heading towards a zero footprint as fast as they can go. But we all know that if we're honest with ourselves, that the society that we've built over the last hundred years is going to be very difficult and time consuming to dismantle in some of its elements. So the red mechanism creates an opportunity for companies to go beyond what they are able to do today in their own business and to facilitate action that is desirable in the global south with communities directly. And I think that's the beauty of the opportunity that's in front of us is to really make those direct connections between the market and those communities and make it a much more efficient flow of capital to solve these problems. Great. Absolutely right. Mike Kortinsky, president and founder of Wildlife Works. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. For more on the Wildlife Works projects in Kenya and the DRC, do check out recordings of the webinars we held recently with community members and project leaders from each, available on the Innovation Forum website and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget also to take advantage of the discount available this week for the Future of Food event in May. All you need to know about this and all the Innovation Forum Spring event series is available online. But that's it for now. I'm Dean Welsh and until next week, goodbye.